When we talk about innovation and the fintech agenda, we all need to kind of work together. This should be Team USA, not blue or red. What we need to focus on is what makes the United States what it has been, which is the number one financial marketplace in the world. We can allow fintechs to prosper and function in a space where they partner up with banks. We get to appropriately regulate those relationships, but we don't stifle innovation because we are so risk averse making sure government doesn't screw things up. Hi all, my name is Julie Verhage-Greenberg and I am the co-founder of FinTech Today. And I'm John Pitts, Global Head of Policy at Plaid. And this is the policy podcast where we dive into all things FinTech policy. Or as much of it as we can cover in 20 minutes. In today's episode, uh, we've got a very fantastic guest, uh, Chairwoman Yelena McWilliams of the FDIC. She has been with the FDIC for, I think, about three years now, uh, and she is here to talk to us uh, everything uh, innovation, banking, fintech, regtech. I I think we can cover a lot in 20 minutes. No, absolutely. Thank you, John, and thank you, Julie, and we'll cover everything in 20 minutes. (laughs) We better talk really fast. Uh, well, diving into it, the you know, you've been there through a changing administration. Let's just start off on that. You know, what things have you noticed, noticed that have changed in the past few years? Because not only obviously how we had that, but we've also fintechs become a really big thing in the past few years too, and a, a bigger part of your agenda. I'm sure, even though you've been paying attention to this space for a very long time. No, absolutely, and I'll tell you, I'm I'm uh, I've spent a little bit of time in Washington beyond my three plus years at the FDIC. So I know that with every changing administration, they're changing priorities, uh, et cetera. But I think that just overall, when we talk about innovation and the fintech agenda, I think really where we all need to kind of work together, this should be Team USA, not blue or red or purple or whatever else it may be in between. Um, What we need to focus on is what makes the United States what it has been, which is the number one financial marketplace in the world, in a place where financial inclusion uh, can can foster in so many different ways, and where we can allow fintechs to prosper and function in a space where they uh, partner up with banks, uh, we get to you know appropriately regulate those relationships, but we don't stifle innovation because we are so risk averse. And I think that that's a theme that frankly permeates throughout different administrations. Uh, and at the FDIC, we have been very, very focused from the from the get-go, and get-go being uh, June of 2018 when I was uh, confirmed for the job, on how can we allow innovation to prosper, to grow? How can we responsibly provide a banking opportunity for innovation to enter our, our, our regulated framework through banks and uh, by allowing fintechs to access the banking system? And really, honestly, from my perspective, that's because I firmly believe that uh, we have uh, too many unbanked Americans. We have about seven, over 7 million American households that are unbanked. We do a survey at the FDIC every two years. It's called How America Banks. And we know that over 7 million households do not have a banking relationship. So when you talk about innovation and fintechs, I see a tremendous opportunity here for those unbanked Americans to become a part of the banking system and uh, prosper in the system by making the system work for them. So that's great. And that leads into sort of the first question I wanted to ask, which is, uh, 
you've championed an office of innovation at the FDIC, and I, I think that's now been up and running with a director for just about a year. Um, I'm curious, have you found that it's been easier for fintechs uh, to approach the FDIC and have some of those conversations on innovation now that that office is up? And a, a second question, maybe one that's a little bit spicier, have any FDIC banks elected to talk to the Office of Innovation uh, as their way of sort of engaging with the FDIC on some of these these tough balancing acts between innovation and and consumer protection and other interests? So great questions. And I'll tell you this, we have had uh, the innovation effort here at least since since June when I walked in in 2018. But the Office of Innovation took a while to set up because we were looking for a very specific mindset to um, uh, basically run this office, somebody who is not a regulator, not a lawyer, not a DC insider who's not bogged down by you know, oh, we shouldn't do it because it's risky or because, you know, we, we don't know what it is. And so it took a while to find this person. We finally found a director. and But the office kind of has been quasi-operating even before that. And we have engaged uh, in a number of outreach meetings. I actually even make, right before the pandemic, I would say about six months before the pandemic, uh, I made a trip to uh, Silicon Valley and, and, I, and, and San Francisco and basically went specifically to meet with the fintechs. And I asked them um, uh, questions along the lines of, um, what is it, number one, what is it that you invented? What are you doing, right? And, and then where did you see the need? Why you? Why, why do you think you were the best person to do or the best company to do this when, you know, we had some traditional players in this space? So what is it that you do better or more efficiently or more, more cost effectively? And then the third one is when you, when you try to break into the banking uh, sphere and you work with banks, what obstacles do you run into uh, from a regulatory perspective? And what became clear from those meetings to me is that uh, we need to create uh, this platform regulatory platform for the bank fintech partnerships. And that's what we have been focused on. Uh, we continue that focus through the Office of Innovation. But one of the greatest things that came out from, from those discussions I had with uh, the fintechs in California was basically, why can't we create some kind of a good housekeeping seal of approval for fintechs, right? One of the things that regulators being risk averse think about is like, oh, we don't want to introduce more risk into the system. Well, what if we could control? Well, what if we could uh, uniform, uh, make that risk uniform and control it in a way, right? So the idea came literally from uh, those meetings that we should maybe consider standing, setting up a standard setting body. And we're in the process now for two years of setting up this, uh, we call it SSO, Standard Setting Organization, which is a public-private partnership that would allow us to uh, team up with this entity when it's set up and provide for the um, kind of a, the vetting and the onboarding of fintechs with third, with, as third-party providers with banks. So basically, this, this organization, SSO, would do the kind of a initial due diligence uh, based on, on the FDIC guidelines and processes. And then once a fintech uh, is able to satisfy those guidelines, they would be issued then, you know, I'm, I'm, this, is, this is the proverbial certificate, uh, you know, uh, whatever is the, the, the digital version of that, of good, good housekeeping seal of approval that they could then take to the banking organizations and say, hey, listen, we have been approved by this SSO slash FDIC to be onboarded. And then literally it should be a click of the button 
to onboard that fintech with the bank. So it reduces the inefficiency in the system that every bank has to go by onboarding this one company, and this one company has to go with every single bank that they try to be onboarded. So there are different initiatives that we have engaged in. Uh, and so in that process, Julie, to answer your question, yes, we have talked through our Office, office of Innovation and otherwise with banks uh, as well as fintechs on what we can do. But one of the things that we joke about uh, when, we, when we formally launched the office uh, and uh, we said, oh, let's have open hours, open, open office hours. We got all kinds of requests. And we realized we need the manpower or, you know, woman power, whatever, person power, whatever is the, is the word today, uh, to, uh, to, to satisfy that demand. And it became clear to us that there is this hunger out there, hunger to talk to the regulators, uh, uh, especially regulators who have open mind on these issues, to kind of figure out a way forward. Because in the end, it's not about a fintech or a bank or a regulatory uh, agency. It's about, you know, what kind of an environment do we create in the United States of America for companies to prosper and to compete and to make sure that we have the best functioning financial market in the world as we have had for the past century. So I think there is, there is a bigger picture here that we should not miss. So I think one of the things that's most interesting and exciting to me about the way you frame that out, particularly the it's about creating the ecosystem, is this notion of banking moving from fundamentally sort of a brick and mortar, pencil and paper business into a digital business. And, you know, one of the things that defines digital business to me is the ability to scale rapidly. And I think at the core of what you just described there is we have systems in place right now where rapid scaling doesn't really happen in banking because, you know, if you've got a good idea, it maybe works for your bank, but the same bank with the same idea down the street needs to run that as if it's a brand new idea that no one has ever considered before, especially in partnership. And that's sort of almost anathema to how the tech world works, where, hey, this app works really great for this. This is a way for, you know, my Uber app to tell where I am on a map. Guess what? The same API works for Lyft and works for all the other driving companies. And what I really hear under your statement, and I wonder if this is sort of where you're getting here, is we need to take that sort of scalability approach and build it into the banking system and financial institution systems in the same way it has been built into tech in order to get those benefits of sort of real scale and real innovation at scale into financial services in the country. So I will say uh, yes, a qualified yes to that. And a qualified yes, because as a bank regulator, you're always concerned about, you know, banks or, or entities that you regulate scaling rapidly, right? So because you can't you can't really control for that scaling, you you, you want to make sure it's done in a responsible way. You want to make sure that the management team can can assess and appropriately mitigate risk that comes with that scaling. But at the same time, I think we would be oblivious if we didn't recognize that introduction of technology and especially financial technology, whether by banks or fintechs has democratized finance. Uh, products and services that were so expensive in the past and frankly unachievable for somebody like me who came to the United States with $500 to my name you know, 30 years ago and couldn't get a credit card. Uh, and then I remember when I got a secured credit card, for, I think the limit was like 300 bucks. I was so happy because I had a credit card. Um, and and the fact that that somebody like like thirty year old, thirty year ago me could now just get get access to credit 
without having to go through the steps and, and the torture of kind of building that credit over a couple of years in order for me to get an actual credit card unsecured um, is, is something that is, is, is something that, frankly, regulators don't um, emphasize enough. And so when we talk about the opportunity, the ability of, of financial technology to democratize finance, to make products and services more readily available at a lower cost and more efficiently, to broader masses, to basically provide this uh, great equalizer opportunity for the American society and, and, and its members, um, I think we have to be open up to the idea that maybe, maybe just maybe, we, we the regulators need to find a path for this scaling and for the magnitude of scaling that we need to, um, uh, to allow in a way and to responsibly regulate and manage in order for that technology to be available to the masses. And it's, it's uh, I, I always joke, uh, uh, you know, about idioms, and I, and I quite often get them wrong, but I think this one is appropriate. You know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? So th- there's this product or a service that's phenomenal, and yes, there is risk involved around it, but just because there's risk, you shouldn't just nix it, right? Because maybe somebody with a, who's, who's credit invisible can now get credit. And yes, there is risk in that, but does that mean that this person should not get credit that can otherwise be managed and properly regulated? And so I just want to make sure that at least your listeners understand uh, for all of the you know, polarizing talk from Washington and all of that, there are regulators who are thinking more broadly about uh, what, does, what does this new ecosystem in which we function, in which technology is everything, in which people now apply for their loans, you know, mortgages, et cetera, in pajamas while watching TV and sipping latte, uh, you know, or a glass of wine depends on, on, on the beverage of choice. You know, what does that mean for us in Washington? And, and are we ready to kind of a shed the old skin, the skin that, you know, required certain way of examining banks and collecting data and doing things like we've been doing it for literally 100 years? And are we ready in Washington to basically bring this new um, vision of what regulation should look like in order for uh, this democratization of finance to prosper and for our financial system to be um, utmost competitive. Going off of that, which pieces of innovation do you feel like are impacting the underbanked community uh, for the most positive part at this point? So I would say from the most positive perspective, um, some, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, use of alternative data. You know, a lot of people, um, I, I, I try to explain to, um, you know, I, I was born and raised in Serbia, former Yugoslavia, and uh, I, you know, explaining how our credit uh, system works in the United States, especially credit scoring system and, and kind of what a, what a black box this is. Uh, to somebody outside of the U.S., it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting phenomenon. You should try it sometimes uh, if you're willing to spend a couple of hours. But um, the fact that uh, we can rely on alternative data on how somebody pays their you know, energy bill or cell phone bill, and the fact that we have even the poorest people in the United States of America have a phone uh, 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 you know, an iPhone or an Android phone, whatever they may have, but it's a smartphone at their disposal. And basically they have a computer in their hand. And for a lot of them, they may not be able to own a car, but they own this phone that is their access to the world. And the fact that we can actually access now, we, uh, both regulators and you, the tech companies, can access this person through this channel and be able to collect data uh, hopefully in a responsible manner, because otherwise wouldn't be uh, really uh, looked favorably upon by regulators. But to collect it in a way that actually makes this person bankable is just this phenomenal notion, right? And so I think that um, I would say I would put use of alternative data as number one thing that has expanded 
uh, financial inclusion. I think some of the artificial intelligence and machine learning models that a lot of the fintechs employ have allowed that data to kind of a be um, um, a scenario tested and tested again and improved. Um, I've talked to some of the of the technology comp fintechs in particular that basically are able to lend at 520, what would what would be considered a 520 credit score, and do so with minimum loss rates, which is something that, frankly, when you look over the last 30, 40 years of banking, has been impossible to achieve. And then figuring out how can we make that uh, technology and and that understanding of a consumer behavior implemented into our kind of a old, um, in many ways, state regulatory framework is something that, uh, frankly, I hope to bring us to the, to the next century while I'm here still on the job at the FDIC. So I have one question on, on that alternative data, but I, I apologize. I have to presage that question with a somewhat embarrassing story, which is in uh, December of 2019, I was sitting in a very dark conference space at like a 300-person conference and got an email alert. And the email alert was that the FDIC and the other prudential regulators had just issued new guidance encouraging the use of cash flow data and other forms of alternative data for banks. And it's embarrassing because in the middle of the conference, I jumped out of my seat and whooped that it was one of the (laughs) most exciting policy developments I've ever seen. That embarrassing moment aside, every by the way, and everyone turned and looked. It was like mid-speaker, like this was very bad. Um, that was 2019. I don't know that I've seen a huge sort of stampede of banks to actually sort of taking the opportunity that that guidance provided for using some of that and getting those benefits for credit invisibles. What are the major barriers that are still there for banks acting on this opportunity and acting on the opportunity to partner with fintechs? Do you think it's policy barriers or do you think it's sort of attitudinal or cultural, or is there something else going there that, that you'd like to knock out of the way to get more momentum on, on a project like yeah, that? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And you shouldn't be embarrassed. I have by far worse embarrassing stories about, uh, about things where, where, where I had a, a super reaction in, in public. Um, but here's what I'll say about that. Um, I, um, that, that guidance on use of alternative data is something that we fought very hard uh, at the FDIC to get to the forefront. And as everything moves in Washington very slowly, being a, a three-agency guidance document, it ended up, we, we worked with the OCC and the Fed on it, uh, but spearheaded the effort, was something that it was important for me. And, and I remember, I remember uh, as we were negotiating different uh, components of that, I was like, but you know what, just think of little Yelena, the 18-year-old Yelena who needed to get credit, okay? So yeah, this needs to work. Um, uh, and I was reminded repeatedly that we don't write regulations based on my personal experience. And I said, well, now I'm the chairman, so you do. And so so <laughs> it, 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 uh, it was one of those coup d'etat moments where we didn't think we could get the agency to agree on this, given how risk-averse we are. Um, I will say that a uh, couple of things happened uh, where that has not really come to fruition to, 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 to the most um, exponentially possible way that we hoped. One is that um, a lot of these banking organizations, um, they, have, uh, 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 they have legacy systems. And the legacy systems, and this is, I would say, one of the primary differences between a t- fintech company coming onto the scene, brand new, you have no platform, you're building it, you can build it, it's agile, you can move very quickly, you can, you can finesse it, uh, it's not, you know, brick and mortar locked into this, you know, legacy system upon legacy system upon legacy system, right? And it allows you the ability of movement uh, and change that banks, quite frankly, quite don't have very often. So changing the systems to allow for, for this kind of a op- product 
offering, et cetera, has been something that uh, I think more banks would have focused on. But for the fact you mentioned this was December 2019, we ended up having a pandemic within the next uh, three months. And then the efforts kind of a move to like modifying loans, working with your borrowers. What do we do about X, Y, Z? Can we keep the branches open? You know, uh, uh, putting like the, the uh, I now know that there are enzymes you can put on ATM buttons that basically are kind of a destructing bacteria and viruses. And I'm like, where was this before? Um, so they kind of <laughs> turned their attention to other things versus developing these models. But the other thing is like also by the time we developed this for banks, there were so many fintechs in this space that for a bank to now change its its legacy systems and allow for a new product offering, which usually takes a couple of years to develop a prototype, test, tell your regulators about, um, and then test again, um, really, uh, um, I, I think that uh, they see viable competition uh, by fintechs. And again, re recognizing that fin fintechs have the agility to scale, modify, amplify, and the agility to do so by far more quickly than um, than a bank. It's kind of a, like looking at a speedboat versus, you know, a cruise ship. And yeah, you may have uh, the stability of the cruise ship and, and, and better food offering and more cabins and all of that better views from that height, but that speedboat is going. And you know, if the, if the question is speed, then the speedboat wins, right? If the question is uh, other things, may, maybe the, the cruise ship wins. But it, the, truth, the truth of the matter is that we hope that more banks will look into this because I think it's a viable metric to get more people banked. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a tool for financial inclusion. And really, when you think about the banks, you know, how are they going to attract new customers? They have really just a couple of different venues. One is to... Um, to offer them something that nobody else is offering. And this is where you see, you know, $300 offers, come and open up a, a, a checking account. And here's another $300 if you open up a savings account and you got to be with us for six months. But the customer that you just spent 600 bucks on and you told him you have to be with us for six months, in six months, that customer is likely to leave for somebody else who offers him or her 300 bucks, right? So that's one way. The other way is like, can you find a base that's not fully banked? or banked at all. And I think this is where the use of alternative data can actually help banks. It's, it's a symbiotic union where you could help somebody become a part of the banking system and you get a customer. So I hope that they see a benefit in kind of a working with their legacy systems and, and making sure that these new products and offerings can be developed to bring more people into the banking fold because frankly, they could become a customer of that bank. And you know, that checking account that I opened up on the first day in the United States back on July 30th, 1991, I still have that checking account. You know, it, it's kind of a, like one of those things where when I met the CEO of a bank, I was like, you know, you never even sent me a letter thanking me for 30 years of banking with you. I'm just, I'm going to change banks now. I still haven't. But it's it's one of those things that uh, you want to build um, a customer from, from the ground up because that customer may stay with you for decades. And that's why I hope they look at this guidance on, altern on alternative data as a tool, not only to help the issue on unbanked and underbanked in the United States, but to also allow them to bring more customers on board. I hope they hear you and I hope they're listening to this podcast because I see a huge opportunity there as well, uh, which is why I whooped. Well, thank you so much, Chair One, for joining us. It was great to have you on today. Uh, you know, I knew you were very smart. I knew you were very personal. I had no idea how funny you are sometimes too. So this was a this was a very fun episode to record. Um, John and I for sure enjoyed it. And 
you know, you're welcome back anytime. I'm excited for your trip to Austin in a few weeks as well. Hopefully we have a chance to meet up in person now that, you know, the pandemic is dying down a little bit. And there's a lot of innovation going on in this city too. So I'm excited about it. I'm super excited as well. And I'll tell you, Julie, on, on the, on the, on the, on the, uh, on your comment about jokes. So there was uh, somebody <laughs> commented on social media. Oh, you know, now the FDIC chairman staff is putting jokes in her speeches because I usually keep the jokes that, and, and, and I looked at uh, my, my chief of staff and I said, what are they talking about? My staff doesn't want me to make jokes. So they're literally <laughs> mine because my staff would make better jokes. So I, I claim authority <laughs> over my own jokes. So thank you for recognizing uh, however goofy they may be. They're still mine. Uh, I like it. I like the ownership as well. Uh, otherwise, I will catch you guys again next time. Thank you again, John. Thank you again, Chairwoman. And that's all for today's episode. Thank you, everyone. Thank you both. <laughs>